This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Last week, we considered Matthew's Beatitudes and compared them to Nietzsche's ideas of slave morality and to politics and all sorts of fun stuff. And we're going to finish Matthew's Beatitudes today. We're also going to look at Luke's Beatitudes. Luke has a very different set of Beatitudes, as we'll see, and that shouldn't alarm us. Uh, Jesus probably shared the Beatitudes on many occasions, probably with some important differences here and there at various times. Luke's Beatitudes, rather than showing us a different set of Beatitudes, show us a new depth in Jesus's guide to who we are and how to live like him, how to live in this maze that we call the world to be ready to enter his extraordinary story. So next is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This one is what Jesus Christ was all about. He went out of his way to eat with tax collectors and sinners, He went out of his way to reach prostitutes, to reach out to those who most needed what he had, which was forgiveness. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but the world does not see Christians today as like him. In poll after poll, people say Christians are judgmental, quick to condemn, not very welcoming. We tend to have a very different understanding of ourselves, but I think they're on to something it's highly probable that maybe they're even right. Christians, and I include myself here for sure, much prefer bunkers and bubbles to sinners in service. We're just fine with the status quo. We like the people in our comfortable circles, but we don't particularly like people outside of our comfortable circles. In fact, we might think that those people are opponents to be defeated rather than souls that need to be reached. Christians nowadays tend to think of ourselves in a culture war where we are in heated battle with opponents who want to destroy everything we believe in, and we, in turn, want to destroy everything they believe in. Well, Pope Francis famously proposed a very different metaphor for what the church should see itself as in our day. He said, I see the church as a field hospital after a battle. In other words, we're supposed to be looking for victims of our culture, not perpetrators. Obviously, we need to go after people who are actively proposing the wrong and actively impeding the good. There are truths that Christians have to defend. There are untruths that Christians have to dethrone. But the people who we know who have been hurt by the lies of secularism will only be healed by Christ's love and forgiveness, not by our disgust. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy They will be the ones who actually reach the people of our times, who actually reach out to their neighbors, their literal next-door neighbors, for starters, and bring them closer to Christ. The next beatitude is, blessed are the pure of heart. Pope John Paul II said, to be pure of heart is to see the true value of other people and to not make them objects. People describe how just speaking with Pope John Paul II or with Mother Teresa 
filled them with a sense of peace and purpose. They felt like they were in the presence of someone who took them seriously, someone who looked at them and understood their worth. They felt ennobled just by the gaze of John Paul II or Mother Teresa. That's because when John Paul II and Mother Teresa looked at someone, they saw their real value. They saw the value that Christ saw when they looked at that person. They saw somebody of infinite value. We tend to look at people very differently. We tend to look at them as someone that we may be able to use in some way. Somebody who may impede us in something that we want or somebody who may actually help us get something we want. We think of them as an object of networking, perhaps, or as an object of passing the time, giving us some pleasure, or worse. Because the biggest threat to purity of heart today is obviously the pornography epidemic, where pornography is by far the most watched form of entertainment, beating professional sports, beating streaming beating just about everything. And pornography tends to destroy our understanding of other people. Studies show that people addicted to pornography have a very hard time forming real, lasting, mutually satisfying bonds with real human beings. Men who are habitual users of pornography stop seeing people, as a matter of fact. They see parts. The pornography use trains them to look at people in a very creepy way. They become creepy in ways that bother them driving their own self-esteem downward. Davy Rothbart had a New York Magazine piece that demonstrates that. The headline summed up exactly what happens with porn addicts. He's just not that into anybody. But the quotes in the article, including from John Mayer, make it clear that pornography brings people to a very creepy place. Pornography use short-circuits the brain's reward systems. It floods your mind with euphoric dopamine hits, and then it causes you to have a kind of a glazed-over, indifferent vision of people apart from pornography. And the story was example after example of pornography addicts who lost their significant others, their spouses or their lovers, because they just couldn't deal with real human beings anymore. As John Paul II put it, the opposite of love is use, and when you use another person to please yourself, it's actually worse than hating them. The more you become incapable of giving yourselves to others, the more you block your propensity for self-gift. Pornography draws users into stranger and stranger places as it puts higher and higher demands on what it wants before it'll give you the dopamine hit that you're looking for. And it leaves people less committed to their spouses, more likely to have lenient views of rape. And as several news stories have pointed out in the run-up to the legalization of same-sex marriage, it made people more open to redefining what marriage was. New articles say it drives people's choice to change their sexual orientation or even change their gender. And that drives the way we look at everything. As Pope Francis put it in Laudato Si, Thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. And he adds that valuing one's own body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary. End quote. 
It makes sense. As my students learn, we imitate what we see and we are what we choose. If we understood how immense our souls are and how beautifully they mirror the Trinity, we would shudder at the responsibility. We would see others as a precious gift to be nurtured, not a source of pleasure to be used. Then we would look at people the way Pope John Paul II and Mother Teresa look at people. But the Beatitudes aren't just a negative explanation of how we sin against purity of heart. They're actually a positive prescription on how to live life better. I wrote an article called Blessed Are the Lovers, Beatitudes for Married Couples on Ex Corde. You can check it out in the description and see some of the positive ways to live this beatitude. Next beatitude is blessed are the peacemakers. We have a big problem with violence in America. I mean, we see it on the news all the time, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our entertainment, which often shows violence as an answer to problems. Even the Hollywood celebrities who are most for gun control often make their living in movies where guns are the necessary means to their happy ending. Parents at first that I know were delighted by the Marvel movie franchise that kids wanted to see because there was very little swearing, if any, there was very little sexual content, if any. But the more you watch these things, the more you realize how constant the violence is in these movies. It's nonstop, and it's definitely a means to a happy ending over and over again in these movies. When he was reviewing films in Kansas City, Santiago Ramos used to write about how thoroughly this attitude of violence has permeated our minds. He described how the violence early on in the film For Greater Glory, which was a Catholic project film about the Cristero movement in Mexico. He talked about how the early violence in the film sapped power from the violent act later at the end of it, which is the destruction of a child martyr. He said, quote, the scenes which depict the torture and execution of blessed Jose Sanchez del Rio, a 14-year-old Cristero, are accurate and graphic. Yet by the time we get to them, in the third act of the film, I had already gorged on the senseless, easy violence of action movie variety, and I could not shift into the more serious attitude required to contemplate the harrowing suffering of a martyr, end quote. By oversating us with violence, our movies tend to convince us that violence is an acceptable answer to a problem and desensitize us to the reality of what actually happens when people are violent. But while violence is often necessary to defend a nation or defend our neighborhood, it is never really a solution to problems. Pope Benedict XVI and Pope John Paul II both point out that even the necessary and noble war, World War II, left Europe on a path to secularization and the culture of death. Both popes actually lived to see Nazis take over their countries. For John Paul II, the Nazis were defeated by a new set of tyrants, the communists. For Pope Benedict, Nazis were followed by leaders who thought Christianity had failed and wanted to forge a new way. We tend to have a totally different understanding of war in America, where war has very rarely touched our own shores. We see the war as a time of triumph overseas and a time of glory for our country, whereas people who live in Europe see war as something which changed everything about their history, about their people, about their culture. The Nazis, in fact, tried to build a culture of death and failed. But after the violence it took to save Europe, abortion was embraced as an answer to problems. And we were blessed to have as Pope 
a true peacemaker in Pope John Paul II, who helped defeat communism in his homeland, not by violence, but by being faithful to the principles of peace and promoting the truth of Jesus Christ. Solidarity, not war, is the path to peace, and so blessed are the peacemakers. So the last beatitude is blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who suffer persecution for justice sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there are many people persecuted for their Christianity today. There are more than ever before. There's Christians being harassed and killed in India, in Africa, in the Philippines, in China, in Myanmar, in Iraq, in the Middle East, and on and on and on. And it turns out that their faith is much stronger than those of us who have not been persecuted for ours. It's their faith, like the faith of the first martyrs, that will transform the world. After ISIS terrorists killed a group of Coptic Christians in Libya in 2015, broadcasting footage of their beheadings, the families of the martyrs had astounding things to say. Typical was an 11-year-old daughter of one of the martyrs, Magad Shihata. She said, May God forgive the killers. We don't have hatred towards them. This is Christianity. God forgives the sinners. So shall we. That's a little girl talking about the men who beheaded her dad and posted the video online. And that kind of love is extraordinary and it's infectious. One young Coptic Christian shared on Twitter in 2020, I can't believe it's been five years since the incident that made me change my whole life. In 2015, I was immature and I hated the church. When I heard about the video about the martyrs and the reactions after, it reminded me who I am and who Christ is. About a year later, I started going back to the church. Now she runs a Christian apologetics account. So this persecution really does change people and really does change history. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad on that day for your name is written in heaven. So this final beatitude about persecution reminds me of the beatitudes from Luke. So we've been going through the beatitudes in Matthew there's a very different account of the Beatitudes in Luke. Now, I've always liked the direct, concrete approach that Luke has. So I'll read the Gospel first. Jesus went down from them and stood on a level place. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how the ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So in Matthew, Jesus climbed a mountain like Moses to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, which can sometimes be misunderstood to think Jesus is praising kind of a general attitude toward poverty. In Luke, Jesus comes down to a stretch of level ground like Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down the mountain and says, blessed are you who are poor, which means Blessed are you who right now, this minute, are wondering how you will pay your bills. Blessed are you who right now can only afford to live where you shouldn't have to live. Blessed are you who can only afford to eat what you shouldn't have to eat. 
Blessed are you who, right now, can only give your children less than what you should be able to give them. Matthew doesn't soften that, he broadens it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and that means blessed are you who are poor in talents, poor in health, poor in peace, poor in mind, poor in spiritual strength. Blessed are you if your life on earth is hard, because you will be forced to look outside this maze of space and time for your fulfillment. Once you do that, the kingdom of God is yours. Next, Jesus says with terrible immediacy, Blessed are you who are now hungry. Remember in Matthew, it's blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which we can sometimes misapply to ourselves because, heck, we want justice, not injustice. But Luke makes it clear that there is nothing vague about what Jesus is talking about, while Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is talking about more than an empty stomach. The physically hungry are entirely focused on finding the food their family needs right now. And the spiritually hungry are to be entirely focused on finding what their community needs right now. Blessed are you if injustice is just as unthinkable to you as not eating. Blessed are you who are now dissatisfied, for you will be driven hard to find the one thing that satisfies. Last, Matthew's blessed are they who mourn can sometimes be misconstrued. Jesus doesn't mean blessed are the kinds of people who regret their losses in life. Luke reveals Christ's urgency and attention. Blessed are you who are now weeping. Blessed are you who have been damaged by life and can't seem to catch a break. Blessed are you who have been heartbroken by death, disease, disaster, or difficulties. Blessed are you who are victims of injustice and imprisoned by your own past mistakes. You weep now, but you will laugh soon at Christ's side. For me, these blessed are you nows make a stronger impression than the blessed are they whos. Jesus doesn't want me to improve my intentions. He doesn't want me to embrace a hypothetical future state when things might go hard for me. He wants me to rid myself of attachments right now. He wants me to struggle for a better life for myself and others right now. He wants me to love so deeply that I have to hold back my tears for my neighbor's sins right now. And I love that Jesus lists woes too. This is Jesus's teaching method and it's the only teaching method that really works. Yes, in the Beatitudes, he emphasizes the positive, pointing out how great it is to do the right thing, but he doesn't whitewash the negative. He warns us that devastation awaits those who freely choose to do the wrong thing. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, he says. You are not counting pennies, but counting possessions. You are in trouble, and in America that applies to almost all of us. Woe to you who are filled now, he says. You who have satisfied yourself with what this life has to offer without finding a way to share it. You who have spent so much on yourself that you have nothing left for others. You had better be careful, because when all of those things go away, and they will, you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, Jesus says. You who are filling your time with pointless entertainment and passing pleasures without a thought for God and neighbor are in for a rude awakening, for you will grieve and weep. Jesus means what he says. He isn't bluffing. Don't make the mistake of thinking he's just using scary words to make a point. Don't think that he really intends to pat us on the back and say, yeah, you cut a lot of corners. You didn't take life seriously, but don't worry about it. We're good. He means what he says, and he says, woe to you if you reject his way. 
But if it all sounds too hard, if it sounds like too much, the church has a handy way to sum up the Beatitudes. And it does it by placing a crucifix in the center of your church. And hopefully you do it by placing a crucifix on your wall. Every crucifix is an icon of the Beatitudes, showing us how hard and how easy the Beatitudes are because we do them with him. Jesus, stripped on the cross, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's left everything behind. He's been stripped even of his clothes, which were his last possession. And he doesn't look pathetic. He looks dignified and greater without them. Jesus, who's dying, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when we look at the crucifix, we have all felt, or are meant to feel, profound sadness. Why are we sad for someone who we know died for us and then rose from the dead? Because we know it's our sin that brought death. And we are comforted by the cross because we know that it's saying that our life was worth it and that we have a second chance now. Jesus surrendered to his enemies on the cross, says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus on the cross has lost every battle. He is not the conquering kind of Messiah some of his followers hoped he would be. He didn't argue his innocence or answer the taunts that were hurled at him. To be meek, to be like Jesus, means to be willing to lose the world's petty battles knowing that God is going to win the war. Jesus' last saving act says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The crucifix shows just how far our hunger and thirst for righteousness should take us. We should do the right thing even when it costs something, even when it's embarrassing, even to the point of sacrifice. In fact, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we should pursue what's right even if, like police officers, members of the military, service workers, martyrs, our pursuit of justice means we someday have to give everything. And Jesus, taking our sin on himself, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The crucifix is an icon of mercy. It shows Jesus, the Son of God, being put to death by those he created and lavished with gifts all their lives, and being put to death for them also. To be merciful, we have to forgive those who hurt us, and the power to do that comes from the crucifix. Jesus, pierced, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is so pure of heart that we celebrate his heart all on its own. The image of the sacred heart is the image of the single-minded, burning love for God that fueled his passion and death. To be pure of heart means to see everyone you meet from the point of view of Jesus on the cross, worthy of infinite love. Jesus' open arms on the cross say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus on the cross is dying with his arms wide open, raised between heaven and earth, calling everyone to unite in him. To be peacemakers, we would rather help our foes to become more right than to show them that they are totally wrong. We would rather see our foes correct their worst tendencies than to see them suffer from them. Last, the crucifix always says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude sums up the crucifix. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad when you are called to suffer, because then you are most like Jesus Christ. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. 
Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at xcorde.org.